When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. In this episode, I'm talking to Juliana Edelman, who's Assistant Professor of History at Dublin City University. Juliana's recent book, Civilised by Beasts, Animals and Urban Change in 19th Century Dublin, may sound like it's quite narrowly focused, one aspect of one city in one century. But that would be to ignore how omnipresent animals were in cities, even into the 20th century. How cities depended on animals to function. Horses literally turned the wheels that kept transport and commerce going. And animal husbandry was much more visible in cities then than now. Whether that was cattle being herded to market or to slaughter, or pigs being kept in back alleys, literally cheek by jowl with the human residents. Juliana vividly conveys the human-animal coexistence in Dublin. Anyone standing in the main thoroughfare of Sackville Street around 1820 would know, she writes, One street to the west lay a warren of butcher shambles, crowded with cattle, and even passengers in an elegant carriage could catch the scent of bone boilers and piggeries on the breeze. Paying attention to the animals, and what people say about them, is a very good way of registering change in a city. Change in its material life, how it operates, and also changes in attitude. As Julia writes, ideas about animals in particular shaped reform movements in the city, altered its social and economic geography, and affected the daily lives of its human and animal inhabitants. This book examines these ideas about animals and how they changed in Dublin between 1830 and 1900. Animals feature in sometimes surprising ways in the context of Ireland's social, political and religious divisions, not just to debates over the zoological gardens and their perceived civilising influence, but also in the Great Famine, when the composition of people's diets came under scrutiny. One long-term trend is the middle classes becoming increasingly concerned with urban improvement, which entailed asserting greater control over animals and those who looked after them. Which animals were permitted where and when in the city, and what it was lawful to do with them. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, it's a story of animals and associated trades being inexorably pushed to the margins. 
When we spoke towards the end of last year, I began by asking Juliana about capturing the texture of daily life in Dublin. How had she gone about that? Well, I will say that I was a member of a, a three-person writing group that included two people who were writing fiction. And it was to some degree at their demanding that those kind of narrative, because they were like, you know, what does it smell like? What does it look like? And, you know, I would give little hints of something and they would demand that those be expanded, which, and they were absolutely right. And perhaps my only regret is maybe I didn't do enough of that almost. And you really have to work. And I think it's partly because as a historian, you have to work really hard to piece those together because you just, the sources, especially for people who are not literate, uh, you know, members of the middle class, educated, you know, you're, you're finding their story only through other people's telling of their story. And the things that that are interesting to us as kind of, you know, 21st century city dwellers that seem different and unusual are so boring to the person in the 19th century as to be unremarkable. So I really was reconstructing things from this little tiny piece in a newspaper, this bit in somebody's diary, the cost of something that I'd found in a set of receipts, and all those little pieces that you need to assemble from so many different sources to just give that flavor. It gives me huge admiration for other people's histories where they just seem to be able to evoke that atmosphere. And I realize now that that looks like sleight of hand and it is so hard to do so hard to do really well those kind of things were all you know they were pulling little pieces from lots of different places to try and give you exactly as you say that that kind of smell that sense of what did it look like what did it feel like and I thought you did it really well also, at the same time, you've got to sort of bear in mind the historian's responsibility, haven't you? You can't, you can't adopt a practice of fiction and lay it on with too thick a brush because then, you know, you're imagining rather than reporting. Absolutely. And, I, and that is the, the challenge because you can, after you spend so much time with these people and with these sources, you can imagine lots of things that are totally plausible, which you don't have any specific evidence for, which you're always trying to decide how much am I stretching my sources beyond what they really say and how much of that is okay as long as I as I flag it. And I suppose in some cases I'm probably a little more conservative because it is an academic history book as opposed to a, a popular work of nonfiction too. So if I if I sort of invite you to be let off that hook for a you know for a moment and say if we as twenty first century visitors could be deposited in central Dublin in eighteen thirty, what would we be struck by in terms of its sort of animal presence? I think probably the first thing everyone would be struck by is the smell because we're quite accustomed to a city that really smells like car exhaust. In Dublin, it smells a bit like the Guinness Brewery. You know, depending on the wind, get a bit closer to the sea, you have the scent of the sea. You would have had the smell of animals everywhere because the streets are full of horses. They're therefore full of horse manure. And horse manure, you know, you probably don't think it smells that bad. And I don't think it smells that bad. But I suspect if the streets are covered with it, it smells a bit stronger than the last time uh, you were even, you know, anywhere near a horse. And of course, the animals themselves have a 
have a scent. And, you know, depending on where you wandered in the city, so if you head towards uh, Stony Batter and towards the, the cattle market district, then you're going to smell other kinds of manure, pig manure, cattle manure, you're going to smell souring milk, um, you're going to smell the stench of all those bodies close together. And blood, the slaughtering, I imagine the city smelled different on the day that most people slaughtered their animals in particular areas. You're going to hear sounds that, you know, that we would be frankly shocked to hear in this, you know, the, the squeals of pigs being slaughtered, the the sound of, of course, the sound of, of horse hooves and things which we're still familiar with. You know, I imagine that the day when the when the cattle market was on and then the, the cattle, which happened until the 1970s, and then the cattle were driven around the city effectively to the to the port for export to England. I mean, that must have been a ferocious amount of noise. And that was a kind of a weekly rhythm that obviously we don't we don't have anymore. And it's not the case that every Dubliner in 1830 simply accepted that was how it was and that was how it always would be. It was not the case. There was no perception there was potentially a problem with the presence of animals in the city. And I guess your book is sort of tracking over the course of the remainder of the century how the city, how certain strata of the city addressed that and what changes occurred as a result of that. What things do you think it's important to understand about Dublin as opposed to looking at other European cities or world cities at the same time? What What is the sort of particularity of Dublin's situation that, that allow you to frame your story in a particular way? I think one of the things that is particular about Dublin is the relationship between class and religion. In Dublin, you have a largely Catholic working and lower class who are, for the most part, you know, making up 95, 99% of the people who are working with animals. And then you have a much more mixed, and as the century progresses, increasingly mixed between Catholic and Protestant, but initially quite dominated by Protestant, educated, middle-class people at the kind of administrative management even the voluntary associations advocating for for various things to do with public health or to do with humane treatment of animals. And so there is a bit of the class tension tinged with religious and, and even national or nationalist sentiments. That's brought out in, I think, in the first chapter in the, the kind of the success of of the zoological society as opposed to the the Dublin SPCA because the SPCA is effectively not taken up by any catholic elites really and that that does happen to some degree later in the century and I and I didn't return to that story in the book but it would be interesting for someone to look at that so that the the zoo gets to be a project that everyone can enjoy whereas the SPCA is really going around punishing people of a very specific social and economic status which is also linked to a religion which is also linked to a national identity and it becomes much more complicated to some degree that isn't quite as true of the of the public health initiatives coming from the corporation but there the peculiarity of dublin is because the corporation becomes quite catholic and liberal over the course of the century but there the peculiarity is the cattle market because dublin is a city 
built around a huge international export trade of cattle. I can't remember what date range precisely it's true, but at some stage it is the largest cattle market in Europe. And it is certainly the biggest and most important cattle market in the British Isles for much of the 19th century. So that makes it quite a unique city. And gives it a unique relationship to its hinterlands and to the rest of the United Kingdom as well. The zoo is fascinating. By the end of the book, you say, well, it it has endured as an institution. It's really the one thing that has endured in the city from its inception in the 1830s. And it's still the way that a lot of Irish children will first encounter, you know, wild animals. And a very simple question I wrote was, why a zoo? The people who founded the zoo in the 1830s. What did they want it to do and to say about Dublin as a city? I think there were two things. I think one of them is simply a statement of being a metropolis. It's, you know, look, we're just like London, which is the other very early zoo, as we know. And Paris also had a kind of zoological garden that was earlier, again, sort of a different idea. But effectively, it's a declaration of the importance of the city and its ability to muster these kind of international networks to acquire animals and and to show off in that way. It's also a kind of declaration of scientific intent, which may maybe isn't quite as successful as the popular entertainment, which again is about kind of, you know, we in Dublin also have this, you know, scientific and medical expertise. And then I suppose as a side project in some senses, it's part of that movement that's popular in both you know, across Europe, really, in America, of forming voluntary associations amongst people who are maybe politically, religiously, ideologically different, but who share social class, and to give them a space to, you know, associate with one another, you know, even if they have these other things that might separate them. But on the ground, you know, in the actual zoological garden, it was a space where classes if not mix, they would at least sort of come up, come up against each other, see each other in the same, I think you say, you know, almost in, in the same way they might look at the animals, they might be observing members of the other class. It was a rare leisure space where the classes did encounter each other. But on the part of the people who established the zoo, there was some kind of didactic intention, some kind of reforming intention behind giving the working class access? I mean, I think they had reduced prices on a Sunday, didn't they? So that was the great popular day. So what was the kind of idea behind that? And why do it in an animal park as opposed to some other kind of space? Yeah, I I mean, I think definitely there's a didactic notion. You know, Philip Crampton, who's involved in the zoo, I believe his brother is also very involved in the temperance movement. And there's quite an emphasis on trying to get working people to amuse themselves in ways that the middle class reformers approve of. And so I think some of the interest is, is just in that in giving people a place to go that's not the public house, and that has some potential useful you know, learning for them, whether anyone got any useful learning out of it is another matter. But they also are aware that people will come only if it's appealing. And therefore, you know, a public display of animals that it's hard to see, that are rare, that you might otherwise only be able to pay to the passing circus or once a year, that's what will attract people. And they become very rapidly dependent on those penny visitors on Sundays for their income. And so 
whether they're kind of fully admitting that it takes a little while, but you know, they're adapting their display to suit that audience to some degree. And there is a kind of, I don't know, calling it titillation is maybe overstating it, but there is a kind of interest for some members of the middle classes to come and watch other people looking at the animals and see how they respond. I mean, I suppose there's that's present in the theatre at the time as well. You know, there are other spaces or indeed, you know, hunting in the country, for example, would have involved, you know, mixing of classes. So there are other spaces for that. But yeah, it, I mean, it's in the city, there are fewer, there are fewer opportunities. And that's definitely part of the appeal. In the, the next decade, the, the, the mid-1840s, the Great Famine occurred. And if you'd asked me before I read your book to speculate on how the Great Famine might become involved in the, in the issues that you were discussing, I guess I might have, you know, speculated about farming reforms um, or, something, or something like that, agricultural practices or something. But you show in, in a fascinating way that... More than that, there was a great deal of consternation about the spotlight the famine shone on how Irish poor people lived and what it said about, I guess, what it said about wider Irish society. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about it. It's obviously a, a huge subject, but how did the Great Famine kind of play into the, the, the key themes that you wanted to look at in writing about animals and, and Dublin society? Your perception is based entirely on what most of the literature focuses on, which is on that issue of agricultural reform. I think recently there has been more work on kind of how it related to cultural changes. And obviously there was early work on lots of work on, on language change. But a lot of that work still focuses on, on the countryside for totally understandable reasons. And I think the debate that was going on in cities and the views of the poor that were encouraged by the reports coming in from the famine districts affected how people viewed the poor in the city as well. And of course, there were also waves of, of migrants passing through the city on their way to, to leaving the country. So for me, what was interesting is to see that discourse around, you know, the Irish poor living like an animal, and to think about how that fed into what people thought were proper reforms and proper relief of poverty in those circumstances. So what I focused it on was the way that the poor were reported in newspapers as kind of looking like, acting like, living like animals. And then also this other related discourse around what people should eat, and how whatever you eat says something about your humanity. And the idea that people would be living on a food that they also fed their pigs, you know, suggested to some people that they were not fully human, and that the only way to be fully human was to particularly to eat meat, but also to eat bread, because it wasn't well understood at the time that actually a potato is is a much more nutritious food than bread. So you can survive on potatoes and buttermilk alone, I think, but bread and butter and you'll you'll develop nutritional deficiencies. So their science wasn't quite right, but it wasn't, wasn't really about science. It was more about the meaning of that bread as opposed to the meaning of those potatoes. I know that the middle class is gawping at the spectacle of poverty is far from being an Irish-only phenomenon. I know it's, it's widespread in the 19th century, but there is a rather shocking 
scene where you describe middle class people paying, I think it's five shillings, to go and watch, you know, the starving being fed in a, in a soup kitchen, which I guess shows how very different attitudes were. And you also talk about animals still being, being you know, being fed, you know, being fattened up nicely at a time when people didn't have enough to eat. Yeah. And I mean, that spectacle of people going to see people fed at Soye's new, Alexis Soye's new fancy, newfangled soup kitchen. Other historians have highlighted that. But I suppose in contrast to the discussion of the zoo, it is quite profound. And I suppose in some senses, they're not I mean, while they are gawping at the poor, one of the things that they're supposed to be marvelling at is the technological ingenuity of the the soup kitchen, which can feed so many people. So it's sort of like going to a factory or... um, And people went to, you know, people toured lunatic asylums and looked at the inmates. Totally different attitudes. And and you're right, the, the issue about feeding animals as opposed to feeding people, the idea that the same materials that are going to fattening animals for show at the Royal Dublin Society's, you know, annual livestock show, as opposed to using them to produce food for for poor people, is complicated and is not always, people don't always see that as an ethical wrong. I suppose in the same way that they, you know, that's positive economic activity producing fattened animals. And so it has a value, even if it might be subtracting from the potential uh, for feeding uh, people. They just didn't see maybe the, that, that that was a trade-off, I guess, in the same way. Your story is one, I guess, of animals sort of gradually retreating to the margins or being pushed out of the city. It's not, it's not linear and, there's, you know, the dynamics are, are complex, but, but gradually they're beginning to, you know, there are felt to be undesirable animals. And by the 1860s, I think 1864 is the first Dublin dog show and 1865 is the introduction of dog licensing. What do those two phenomena say about this attitude towards which animals are desirable and in which places and how they can be regulated? Yeah, and again, we're back to the issue of class. I mean, they say a lot about... I mean, the the dog show is the first appearance of that phenomenon on the island of Ireland, which has already kind of taken off in England at that stage. And it's really about kind of, I mean, back to the Royal Dublin Society's show of livestock. It's really about, um, as Harriet Ridfo has, has written about, it's really about the kind of appropriation of this gentlemanly, farmer hierarchy around the pedigree of your livestock and the movement of that into the sphere of keeping pets, which is very much an urban middle class activity. And that coincides neatly with the introduction of this dog license, which, again, is one of those things that is envisioned as a solution to a rural problem, but has a profound effect in the city, because the idea is that there are dogs running around wild worrying sheep and there's all this discussion of them you know attacking poor doctors on their horses trying to get between patients and parsons and etc and so that was really the problem that was seen you know as needing some kind of solution through licensing but actually it has a huge effect on the city because that's where a lot of people are keeping animals butchers are keeping dogs as you know, defenders of their property and also just to dispose of, you know, as as a different kind of pet keeping than maybe the middle class has had in mind. And um, so that tax really kind of cements 
the cost of having a pet dog makes it a pet because you have to now pay to keep it and it gives a value to that animal. And so for people who can't afford it, obviously there's reports that loads of dogs are immediately released onto the streets or killed in order to avoid paying the tax. And then it becomes a way of of essentially keeping dog ownership within certain boundaries. So your dog has to have a license, your dog has to be logged, which was true before, but is more enforced. Now there's the additional enforcement of the licensing. And it again feeds into that kind of middle class interest in the pedigree dogs and the breed shows, so that the pet increasingly becomes The dog increasingly becomes a pet that you keep in your house, that you take out and walk on a lead, you know, that you keep under various kinds of control, um, as opposed to something that, you know, feeds itself from scraps on the street and that, you know, occasionally comes and uh, sits at your feet, but you don't go looking for if it wanders off for a couple of days. And I think you say in this period, the dog becomes something which is valued and valued in the sense of a monetary value put on it. So when the dog's home starts, I think there's a sort of triage, isn't there, of dogs and the more valuable ones that can be sold on are sold on and the rest are destroyed. Yeah, I was amazed by this. I mean, this was so, it was so much of a example of my argument. I almost was, fell out of my chair when I saw this. But Basically, they they round up stray dogs and they put them in this this home where they keep them, as the newspaper describes it, you know, as much as they're kept as they're chained for a dog show. And they essentially keep the dogs that look like they are fancy breeds of dogs, you know, that they identify and they have people who are involved in the dog trade come and tell them which are the dogs that are valuable. They keep those dogs for a few days in the expectation someone might claim them. And the dogs that look like roaming mutts to them, they poison them. And the dogs eventually get poisoned if they're not claimed, but they're given a longer lead time for their potential owner to come and and fetch them if they look like they have, as you say, a monetary value. Now, dogs and cattle and pigs are all in some way problematic in your period it's you know that some of them at least are undesirable and sometimes all of them in the city are perceived by those who run the city as being undesirable the horse doesn't seem to fall into that category although as you said earlier it produces a prodigious amount of waste and you might think you know as as the age becomes increasingly mechanized steam power railways all that the horse might you know suffer pressure in the same way as the, as the other animals. What, what was it that allowed the horse to retain a sort of privileged position for so long? I think there's a number of things. I mean, one of them is that the, the new forms of transport, as you rightly highlight, they still depended on horses. So the railways actually employ more horses than, you know, than were previously employed in the city. The tram lines in Dublin are horse-drawn until the 1890s, really. So, you know, the, the kind of basic functions of a city as an economic and commercial hub depend entirely on the presence of horses. So I think people can't even imagine how the city would work without them. So there's an acceptance of them from that point of view. They're even engaged in the disposal of the wastes of other organisms in the city, including humans. So there's so much a part of the fabric that I think they just don't get looked at in the same way as as potentially removable. 
The other thing is that people think differently about horses in the same way that they think differently about dogs. You know, they think the horse is a noble animal. They think the horse has, you know, higher levels of in- of intelligence. They feel, you know, companionship with their horse in a way that they don't with cattle or pigs, or at least in a way that they don't that they don't talk about with, with cattle or pigs. I mean, we don't really know if poor people who kept pigs in their house felt some kind of companionship with that animal because we don't have their words talking about it. But certainly for the people who owned stables and could afford to keep horses and a groom and things like that, they did feel something more, many of those people felt something more towards those animals than they did towards wherever they got their meat from. Where in Dublin today do you go or where in Dublin do you sometimes find yourself and feel in touch with the, the sort of animal presence of the of the 19th century? Where, where is it easiest to sort of bring that alive in your in your imagination and sort of close your eyes and half close your eyes and, and think yourself back? Oh, that's a really good question. If that's not too, if that's not too poetic and fictional to ask a historian. Um, I mean, there are streets that are, you know, kind of around where the Tenement Museum now in Henrietta Street is, that are much less changed than other streets in Dublin, sort of North Great Georgia Street. And these are all what would have been very elite streets at the start of the 19th century. And they have, you know, you still have the stable, the arches into the stable lane. And you can kind of squint and maybe feel like it's a different, it's a different time. Funny enough, the area where the cattle market is, which you think would be evocative, has been so altered that it just doesn't have the same, you know, the there's a housing development in both the site of the former cattle market and in the site of the former public abattoir. So it's pretty hard to imagine that part of the, you know, there's a Tesco and a car park uh, caddy corner to one of the, to opposite where the cattle market would have been. It's much harder to, to evoke that sense. But I always feel that that area of, um, of kind of uh, Henrietta Street and, and North Great Georgia Street. And then the other area that feels like it to me is the area around where the um, fruit and vegetable market are now sort of heading west from Capel Street and um, around the kind of markets area because there's still just little remnants of of buildings and you get these alleys and things that just you could imagine would have been full of a few hens or pigs or the roaming dog looking for uh, whatever they could find in the gutter. So yeah, those, those are the parts, I suppose, for me. I was talking to Juliana Edelman about her book, Civilised by Beasts, which is currently available in hardback from Manchester University Press and will be issued as a much more affordable paperback this autumn. Juliana is also active as a podcaster. She's recently been podcasting about Ernest Shackleton. The best way to find out about the full range of her activities is on her very smart website, julianaedelman.com. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify, among others, and catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.